As always, before you listen, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, rate us, and stay tuned. Thank you again for tuning in to Research Show's podcast. <laughs> All right. Hello, everybody. This is Dawn of Research Shows. We're in season three, and today we have Noah, founder of Cordis. So, how are you doing today, Noah? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Don. Thank you so much for coming on. So I got confused because <laughs> I'm thinking you're a game developer and there's a difference between being a game developer and game theory. So can you explain to my listeners what is the difference between being a game developer and game theory? Yeah, sure. So game theory is actually the mathematics of strategy. And most entertaining games have very little game theory to them uh, because game theory explores uh, the interactions of agents with different interests. Um, Most games that are done recreationally are zero sum. Somebody wins, the other people lose. Uh, So that strategic environment is, is sort of all set Uh, all by itself. And game developers, particularly coding game developers, are mostly designing sort of immersive worlds for players to interact with. And so the player is actually the only entity in the system that has desires under that, that those circumstances. So there's actually no strategy at all. Um, There's simply this very deep tactical issue of whether you're doing stuff that gets you what you want or not. Okay. And so, okay, go a little bit deeper so so I understand. Well, so game theory has developed uh, some little stories about some simple games uh, to help people understand sort of the difference between strategic situations. And so these involve two-player games that uh, are, are, each player has two choices. The most famous of these is Prisoner's Dilemma. Uh, two okay. people have committed a crime. They're each being, they've been captured by the police. They're each being sweated separately. They can stay quiet or they can betray their compatriot. Um, and the game is based on what happens to people depending on what they do. Um, if they both stay quiet, then they both get popped on, say, a minor charge and do six months. If one of them betrays the other one and the other one stayed quiet, then the guy who stays quiet uh, has to do like 10 years and the other guy gets to walk free. Oh, but they, okay. But if they I- both betray each other, then they both go down for five years. So this is a game where no matter what your partner's doing in the other room, you're always better off if you betray him. Um, this, is, this gets interesting because if you're doing this as a one-off, everyone just betrays the other person. But right. if you're doing it as a repeated game where you're doing it over and over again, um, then now you know that the other person can pay you back for any bad behavior. And so people become cooperative. And this this system helps describe how altruism can arise from just the strategic uh, uh, 
possibilities of selfishness. So, okay. so the situation, if there's a situation where being selfish is better for you, but cooperation is better for the group, and you're going to be in this situation over and over and over again, and you don't know whether or not the group will reject you in the future, suddenly being cooperative in the hopes that the rest of the group is also cooperative becomes the selfish strategy because it actually leads to better outcomes for yourself. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't even think it went that deep. <laughs> so, 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 okay, so I'm understanding that coding is involved in this, correct? Um, it definitely can be. Uh, when, when you get into uh, more complicated games, they become too difficult to analyze just in speech like this. Uh, mm -hmm. And so having computer support for, for finding resolution becomes critical. So was coding hard for you to understand and, and um, is it, um, does it require a certain amount of education? Like do you have to get a master's degree or what, how do you get into this? Do you go directly into being a mathematician? How do, how does that happen? Um, I would, I would say that a mathematical foundation helped me out quite a, quite a bit. Um, coding is one of those things that is difficult, but the existing educational resources aren't that good. Um, okay. uh, it's, it's more a situation of, um, it's, so it's, it's sort of more like being tall and less like being fit, if you will. Um, okay. like if you go to the gym, you can get stronger, but it doesn't necessarily get any easier to pull something off the high shelf if you're not tall enough just because you're more fit now. Um, so, you know, somebody that's like six, six, not a shape and somebody that's like a five, five gymnast, uh, that seven foot shelf is, is just not much of a challenge for, so for the first person. So the thing is to understand um, logic and how, how that functions. Um, okay. And then you have to actually pick up a language. And so the, the best way to do coding really is to have a project that would be aided by computer support um, okay. to give you a motive to actually have something to do and then just use the computer to help yourself out to, to get that project done um, and just sort of go piece at a time, uh, pick up tools as you go along and so on. Um, so it's kind of like you you get you get good at coding by being out in the field or being actually, you know, through your experience, not necessarily sitting in a traditional educational setting, correct? My observation is that's the case. And I think okay. the, the primary reason that's the case is because the educational settings are so far removed from what you actually do in the field. Um, so... I myself didn't actually study computers all that much while I was going to college. I did get a degree and studied nuclear engineering and, and some other stuff uh, and a lot of mathematics. But um, I, I worked for a company uh, where I spent about six years developing a system that was was doing uh, the build process for the company. And they had hundreds of coding employees and, and we had developed multi-stage continuous integration was an automated system that would 
when people saved their work would create a copy of that um, checkpoint it, build it, compile it, test that, and do so in a fashion that the complete packaging and so on could be exported from the building so that third parties could verify that code did what we said it was and was the code that we were all talking about and so on. Um, wow. That that project uh, was, was a collaborative effort between the team that I was on, which was almost a dozen people by the time I left, and mm -hmm. and the hundreds of people that we were supporting. Hi, this is Dawn Williams. I would like to do this quick ad for Technology for Seniors. I am the founder of Technology for Seniors, and that is a program to help our elderly understand technology. A lot of times they don't even know what kind of phone they have, let alone how to go through certain interfaces and don't even mention social media. So currently we have an app. If you go and look under the research departments, it's right now it's only on Google Play. We have an online curriculum for those who are more advanced, who can actually go online. And we have in-person classes for those who need help just getting to the internet. So those are currently available in Southern Maryland. Just visit us on our link tree at linktr.ee forward slash the research departments, or you can call 240-516-6922. You can also text that number. And thank you. Have a wonderful day. And how long um, did something like that take? Like the what you just said, that entire project. How did that, how long did something like that take? Um, so it was probably about uh, two and a half years spread over six years of, wow. of effort. So we would we would sort of develop pieces of it and then have to let that settle in and test um, uh, to to verify that it was actually making progress. We had a few dead ends. Um, we had to adapt around other issues that different teams were having. Uh, we had a the code base split in half at one point. And so the entire way that we were actually developing projects at that company uh, changed because uh, basically one team had gotten too far off the reservation and when we tried to reintegrate their work, we discovered that it was no longer possible for us oh to do that. Goodness. So that sort of a situation can essentially only arise under those kinds of conditions. Um, right. You're never going to have a, a classroom scenario where you're engaged in a multi-year, multi-hundred person project. Right. Uh, with, with sort of continually varying demands being placed upon it. Um, so, so the, the kind of the practical uh, isn't, isn't so much uh, uh, present. Well, and the actually, other, you know what, Th that happens sure. in other career fields too. Well, you know, absolutely. Where, yeah. Where you go into um, thinking that it's one thing, but really it's a whole nother reason why you're in school. And I know, just with me being in my school um, 20 years ago, college school had nothing to do with 
what it was to actually be in the field. It involves so many other things that have nothing to do, and it can't be like described in a classroom setting in nine months. It's like, <laughs> so I understand exactly what you're saying, where you have to get that field experience in order to be able to know how to properly code, because who can sit there for all that time and teach you? you right. Know? And the other thing about coding is that because it's such a young pursuit, um, the people that invented all these techniques, all of their papers and so on are on the internet. Um, so basically what I did was while I was being a professional and and had sort of some, some books to read out of and work through, um, I went out and read the the corpus of information from the guys that invented computing and algorithms in the first place, um, which, which it's all online. So two or three years of reading and, and you, you've absorbed all that there is to absorb. Right. And I guess you would have to have a love for it because you did mention something about being a mathematician, correct? Or uh, yeah, yeah, that that was a big thing for me. I've always had a good mathematical facility, which is going to help you out a lot. Um, but when I got into the mathematics of general computation and algorithms, I really that it's beautiful, and I fell in love with it, and it's my hobby as well, and that that has been a, a boon to me professionally. Yeah, like a great passion. That's what really keeps people going in their careers when you uh when you are have a when you're passionate about something. It just that's your driving force. So now you mentioned something about a patent that you currently have pending. I want you to please elaborate on that. Like the uh, process, is it difficult and what exactly is it? Whatever you would like to say about that. Sure. Well, the patent process is incredibly difficult, as it turns out. Um I'm actually might be setting a precedent. Um, my patent has been accepted. Um, and then the acceptance was withdrawn. And then it was accepted again. And then the acceptance has now been withdrawn again, uh, just just a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I'm in I'm in a very bizarre situation. But basically, um, when you put in uh, your patent, the sort of first thing that you have to clear is that the idea can't already be public. So okay. um, if you if you do a newspaper interview about some cool idea you had, you can't patent it anymore. Um, oh wow. Yes, because once it's once it's published, it's published. The entire point of the patent system is to publish useful information and provide people a personal monopoly for a limited period of time before that information becomes broadly available. And I had no idea. Thank you for that information because I had no idea that is the purpose of a patent. Yes. Um, the the second thing you have to understand is the patent office is heavily backed up. So depending on what area of patents you're in, your first office action is going to be somewhere between two and three and a half years after you put your patent application in. In my case, it was three years of until I got the first response from my patent examiner. Oh wow! So are you? You're not allowed to talk about exactly what it is, correct? Is that what I'm actually? Um, six months after you put the patent into the system, unless you pay a special fee to to keep them from doing this, they publish it. And oh. at that point, it's 
once your patent application is in, you're free to talk about it. So I'm oh, okay. I'm totally open about literally everything um, to to just spread the word on this thing as much as possible. My patent is on a mechanism to aid price discovery in markets. Um, so it's if you've heard of you know the stock ticker, kind of that that you know bouncing line. Um, uh, that comes from ticker tape machines that were sort of these modified uh, Morse uh, uh, devices to move oh, yes. information over lines. I have this different process for acquiring uh, the, the forward price curve information um, that is much more efficient um, from an algorithmic standpoint. And so instead of having to have, you know, rooms and rooms full of computers to do processing at microsecond time slices um, and, and enormous bandwidth that uh, they actually uh, drilled a hole through the Alleghenies, the, the, uh, the Eastern mountain range to create okay. a straighter line between Chicago and New York um, to, to run fiber optics through uh and they were operating that that relay link for something like a hundred million dollars uh an hour or something like that for oh, several wow. months um until some people got the bright idea of building a microwave relay with ultra fast um uh, repeaters on it that was actually uh, a few milliseconds quicker than the straight line uh, uh, laser um, uh, fiber optic uh, thing. So uh, then, then basically it was just abandoned because being a few uh, mil thousands of a second behind the curve is is, is functionally worthless. So really? my system, yeah, my system would essentially invalidate the requirements of all of those things. Um, oh, how so? So. I'm taking a a more algorithmic point of view of the mm -hmm. system as a noise reduction. Uh, noise reduction is a is is sort of a, a critical engineering concept across many disciplines. Um, okay. Your car's shock absorbers are basically a noise reduction system. Um, so what what I'm doing is taking in. Uh, bets about the shape of the future price curve and integrating those together as the investments based on how much information is actually in people's various beliefs about the future and then paying those off based on how much useful information they ultimately provided um, to a system that's doing trades in a batch processing fashion uh, based on the prices that are produced uh, independently by by sort of uh, hive mind. Um, so this creates a system where people that want to make physical trades, people like farmers and factory owners and so on, um, live in this space where they're all being batched together and can be very efficiently broadly traded without encountering market risk. Whereas people who actually want to encounter market risk and, and get returns um, 
get to live inside this system that offers them higher returns than existing markets do and lower risks than existing markets do um, by sort of providing their information to everybody uh, instead of just whoever their counterparties turn out to be. Wow. And, you know, the uh, coincidence in this, you speaking about this, is that my son, my 13-year-old homeschool, and he just asked me like two weeks ago, mommy, I want to learn about the stock market, which I have no idea anything about the stock market. So I literally just watched and studied it because I have to study it in order to teach it to him. Sure. So this is really interesting that you're saying these things. And then also my question now, I know what to ask because <laughs> I am curious now. In regards to, I know I, I found out that there are different types of stock markets and in different parts of the world, there is not just only one stock market. So is your um, um, apparatus that you have for the for this uh, particular, you know, whatever you have right here that you're getting right. patented, is so, it going to be available in all of the stock markets or are you just going to initially start with uh, this one that's here in America? Isn't it two? Is it just one or two, I believe? Um, so there are there are a handful of benchmark markets here in America. The two primary stock markets are the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Um, but I'm focused more on commodity markets. Uh, okay. And the there are, again, a couple of, of big commodity markets here in this country, uh, the Intercontinental Exchange and the CME Group. Um, but the thing to understand about the markets is that essentially each different product is its own marketplace. So um, Tesla stock and U.S. bonds both trade in New York and are traded by the same people, but they aren't the same marketplace. If Right. You know, so it's, it's a little bit like the supermarket. The products aren't interchangeable. Um, there's a bunch of products there but people only buy the ones that they're actually interested in. Okay. Commodity markets are similar, um, but the thing about commodity markets is that uh, in stock markets, essentially everybody is there for the, the next deal. So it's kind of like that prisoner's dilemmas thing I was talking about where the iteration is is the key and it's just always rolling over there's always going to be tomorrow and so on in commodity markets there really is some underlying physical system that's moving um that physical system might be fairly ephemeral uh electricity for example is trade traded in markets and that stuff is you know here and gone almost instantaneously but things like uh, food, grains, rice, wheat, corn, um, meat, uh, dairy, um, cheese, and and butter are both traded through markets. Um, those sorts of products, as well as what are known as soft commodities, things like wood, um, and then sort of industrial commodities, things like uh, nickel, uh, iron, and so on. In fact, uh, just a couple weeks ago, the nickel market uh, had to be shut down. The primary global nickel market is actually in London. Um, uh -huh. And and it had what's called a short squeeze, which is where it's sort of what happened to GameStop uh, a, a while back. Um, people thought that uh, the shorts that were out 
couldn't really cover themselves. And so they bid the market up to, to drive them out. Well, it turned out that one of the primary shorts was a Chinese uh, stainless steel manufacturer that was hedging their, their risk um, because they have to buy nickel on a regular basis so they can manufacture stainless steel. Right. And um, so the price of nickel went up to $100,000 a ton. And oh, wow. They, they were going to be bankrupted. Um, so they shut the market down rather than bankrupting the world's number one stainless steel producer. Who exactly uh, shut the market down? When you said they shut the market down, who? The 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 people operating the market, uh, the London Metals Exchange. Oh, they just uh, totally shut the whole market down. They just turned it off, yes. Wow. And then other people stepped into the gap uh, last week. I don't know if this is still operative today, uh, but Goldman Sachs uh, announced that they would make a market um, so you could trade nickel with them. They would buy for twenty-five thousand dollars a pound and sell for, or a ton and sell for uh, thirty-seven thousand dollars a ton. So forty-eight percent markup um, if you if you want to actually deal in nickel. Um, and those those sorts of costs um, become issues for us in our day-to-day -day consumer lives. If if the food that you buy from the grocery store, which is running through these marketplaces at some level, uh, is having 5, 10, 20, 48% of its value being chewed up, connecting the farmer to the factory owner or the, or, you know, for, for less processed foods, maybe the supermarket, then that, that shows up in the prices that you pay. Wow. And I think, I, well, me personally, I was speaking for myself. I didn't even realize it went that deep. I knew I had no idea why. So thank you for clarifying that, you know? Yeah, I, I think I think that this is probably the single most egregious failure of public education. Um, yes. Because the, at the base level, the sort of microeconomic structure of markets isn't very difficult to understand. And this notion of, you know, food and, and shelter and in many cases water um, being produced by some set of people that then sell it as a service or a product to other sets of people who ultimately consume it. And that's where, you know, our cars and tables and clothing and houses and dinner and everything else comes from. Mm -hmm. um, I think lots of people, you know, sort of think that things come into existence shortly before they touch them. Uh, and that's, that's just not, not the case. And, Absolutely. And these, these underlying systems, they are foundationally the same as they were like eight centuries ago, the, the, the existing model that we use goes back to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, and my contention is that modern communication and computing technology is actually causing these marketplaces to break down. And it is the breaking down of these marketplaces that we see publicly every once in a while with things like the dot-com boom and then the global financial crisis and you know the the recent supply chain disruptions and what's going on with uh you know 
war in Europe and so on. Um, those things are all impacting us through the mechanism of these markets, which are becoming increasingly unstable and increasingly expensive. Um, and, and that is sort of a bigger problem than, than the, the symptoms that we're, we're encountering uh, downstream because exactly so and then how how would you like in your opinion how would you like change that because the only the third only thing that came to my mind as you were speaking on is parents teaching it to their children at home because honestly had COVID not happened I wouldn't even be sitting teaching my child this stuff like I'm gonna go back and listen to this podcast and go right back and incorporate it in um you know and look stuff up and understand it but you know what I'm saying? To me, most people don't understand that whole chain of command thing. Like what you just said from start to finish in regards to commodities and all this stuff, it's, it's like a totally different language. How long ago was that? When did you start the VV show? Two years ago. Oh, wow. So you was nine. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. This is, I'm just so inspired. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So, all right. So. Tell everybody, how is it being a social media influencer? How is that experience for you? It's actually been so amazing because I like to, you know, inspire people, especially at a young age that I am. And I want to inspire, like, kids that's my age or younger and also, like, some adults as well so they can inspire their kids to, you know, I wouldn't say be like me, but be, like, like, like positivity like have positivity and you know be positive not like don't be negative that is so wonderful entrepreneur thursdays with research shows podcast a clip from episode 161 of research shows podcast so how would you um think is what do you think is a good solution to that i I think I think what we're doing right now is about uh, all that that we can do. Um, you know, putting that message out there. Uh, insist on the fundamentals for yourself. Uh, you know, when you hear about something happening, dig deep, figure out why it's happening, um, and and then talk about things in terms of those those foundations and not in terms of sort of whatever's whatever's got the the attention right. um but uh but it is it is a struggle um and yes. the, the people the people that operate these systems are perfectly happy to sort of have esoteric knowledge um mm -hmm. and and the privileges and wealth that accumulates as a result of that and and it's it's a global cost um, so figuring out how to reduce those costs responsibly, um, is, is important. And it's, it's important to understand that naively doing it is not a great idea. Uh, the, right. the sort of the communist dictatorships of the 20th century, uh, basically said, well, you know, these fat cats are making money off the back of the, the working poor let's just put them in camps or shoot them or something. Right. <laughs> um, well, it turns out that the information that those systems develop is really valuable. And, right. 
and we need that information and we can't just have some powerful person in wherever make it up out of their own heads because nobody's smart enough to do that we really do need large networks of cooperative action of people competing and cooperating at the same time to discover this information that runs our economy I don't know how that's going to happen other than because see me, me, well, that's, I'm like, <laughs> that's where I come in. Okay. I've, got, I've got coordinated discovery markets. They, they're, they should, they should be proof against uh, this hyper fast computation communication system that we have because they focus on what's important. They focus on the information, not on the noise. And does that have to do with the um that's the last uh subject we were talking about in regards to shifting financial systems? Is that where you were talking about with that? With uh, um Yeah, absolutely. So if if my systems get into place and start start uh taking over, uh we should see the reduction in cost of of the financial overhead. Um wow. and that would have a magnifying effect on the broader economy. Um You've probably heard about, you know, family farms failing for your entire life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it sounds yes. like you're out of college 20 years. That's about how long I'm out of college. I've been hearing about it my entire life. Um, mm -hmm. Well, farming's a low margin business and it has to be a low margin business because it needs to be highly competitive. That's that's how it's reliable. If okay. all the apples on the earth were only produced by one farm and, you know, they had a forest fire, suddenly you don't get any more apples. So right. the only way that we can have, you know, apples and, and whatever, wheat, bread, stuff that people actually live off of, uh, reliably, we have to have lots and lots of people all over the place all doing it at the same time. We need this competitive structure. That means they have to be operating at low margins. Um, if the marketplace is jacking up 10, 15, even 5% in the middle of that kind of arrangement, uh, then that's essentially coming right off the top. So my, my sort of standard example, um, the, the average wheat farm in America about 10 years ago had an operating margin of about 14%. Um, and the market overhead was around 5%. So if you, every percent you cut down market overhead would be a 7% increase in, in that farm's profits. Okay. So if they were, if they were sort of a median American family with a few kids, um, making, you know, 60, 70 ish thousand dollars a year then they would need to be doing about half a million dollars in in uh in product a year mm -hmm. um if it's a five percent overhead then twenty five thousand dollars of the money that they produce is essentially being used up by by the markets um so if the market went from 5% to 1%, that overhead would go from $25,000 to $20,000. And their right. annual income would go from 60 to $70,000 a year to 
eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year. Right. That's that's a lifestyle change. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and not only is it a lifestyle change, it's also a new direction. You know, somebody that was barely scraping by at the poverty line of like thirty thousand dollars a year with a few kids is now at fifty thousand dollars a year and getting up into the bottom and middle class all of a sudden. And and with margins that big, now when people are thinking about what kind of businesses uh, or jobs that they want to have in their lives, farming becomes more attractive. More right. people are going to start farms. Um, and so you get this sort of positive cycle as the money isn't being used up because the service is now cheaper. Wow. You have like blown my brain apart. <laughs> And I am so glad that I have done this podcast because you like, and I'm sure it's open. It's going to open other people's eyes to a whole other part of the world that we had no idea about. You know, this little we see little bits and pieces on movies, but we haven't really had it broken down to us in regards to you know commodities and all different kind of stuff. As soon as we hear that word, you automatically think of the New York Stock Exchange, and not we didn't even realize there's a whole other branch of it. So your invention is going to like it's revolutionary. Like that's, that's what it really plan. sounds like. Yes. Yeah. This would be this would be the first upgrade in market economics uh, since the northern Italian uh, city states took over the Mediterranean. Wow. Oh, I'm excited for you. <laughs> I am excited for you. This is wonderful. Wow. Well. <laughs> We've reached the end. I am so glad you came on my show, Noah. I don't know if you have any links or social media or promos you want to give, but this is the time to give it. Anybody could, uh, you know, see anything that you have going on. Do you have anything for us? Um, so, yeah, I've got a website at uh, cordisc.com. That's C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C. Uh, and you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Noah Healy on LinkedIn, uh, N-O-A-H-H-E-L-Y. Uh, and, um, yeah, if, if anybody is interested, please do reach out. Thank you so much. And we're going to bring this to a close. If you want to go ahead and rate us on our podcast research shows, you can do it on Spotify, um, at tinyurl.com forward slash DMS podcast or on Apple podcast at tinyurl.com slash DMS Apple. So I want everybody to have a wonderful day on purpose.